Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Hey, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Thank you for being here. Uh, we are continuing our series in wonder as we approach Christmas. Y'all know Christmas is coming, right? All right. Got your Christmas shopping done yet? Okay, I haven't received your gift. I'm just saying, if, if you're done, I just... Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 is going to set up our time this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me there. And we're, we're going to look at this name that we have sung about, this name that we've talked about, this name that we've prayed about, this name that we've seen on the screen. His name is Jesus. Would you just say it out loud with me this morning? Jesus. All right, come on. You can do just a little better. Than, just up the decibels a little bit. Ready? Jesus. All right, awesome. We're going to do that a few times this morning, so you just need to be ready. Okay? Isaiah chapter 9, as we come into the Christmas season, you know, we celebrate the birth of Christ. That's what Christmas is. Culture has distorted that. It's made it a lot of other things. We got Elf on the Shelf. We got all this other stuff. And I grew up with Belt on the Shelf, so I have no idea what this Elf <laughs> stuff is all about. Amen? Anybody with me on that one? Yeah, right? Forget this if you're not good kind of thing. No, you will be good. And you'll like what we get you if we get you anything at all. So we live in a different generation. Isaiah chapter 9, um, look at verse 6 with me. It's on the screen if you want to look at it there. And I want you to read this out loud with me. So let's begin together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Hang on to that word. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Folks, we celebrate and we worship a great gift-giving God. He's the giver of all things. He's the giver of life. He's the giver of salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. And here in the book of Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of a man named Jesus of Nazareth, this prophecy is foretold that to us a son is given. God is giving this incredible gift, and, and uh, I just want to celebrate the wonder of his name this morning. As, as we think about the wonder of Christmas, we started with the wonder of, of his promise. We talked about the wonder of worship. Today, we're just going to talk about the wonder of his name, and his name is what? Jesus. Jesus. Very good. Y'all are paying attention. Stay with me for the next two hours, would you? Um, you know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I love Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. See, God is a great gift giver. He is our heavenly father, and he knows how to give good gifts. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been people in my life that when they give you a gift, you kind of go, hmm. Am I the only one? There are some people, they give you a gift and you go, yeah, this is, this is going to be something awesome. Others, you know, so you kind of know the gift by the giver. Is anybody else in this camp? Okay. There's, there's, we've been talking some Christmas movies recently. So I got thinking about a couple of movies because there's a Christmas vacation. And if anybody remembers when uh, Uncle Lewis and Aunt Bethany arrive, they're carrying two gifts. And Rusty, the son, is carrying these gifts. Do you remember what the gifts are? One is leaking because it's jello wrapped. The other is the live cat. So you remember this, right? 
Well, but what I love, right? So this is from Aunt Bethany. And so what I love is what Rusty says, because Rusty, the little boy, goes, great, can't wait to see what I got. He's anticipating the gift based on the person's name as the giver. I love uh, a toy, uh, not a toy story. Um, I, I love a Christmas story, uh, partially because I so resonate with the story itself. I grew up just north of Chicago, right off Lake Michigan. I understand lake effect snow. Um, I understand the cold. I understand the long stocking hat. I understand not putting my arms down. I understand all those things firsthand. Uh, had a good friend as a kid, got his lip stuck on a railing, freaked out, ripped it off. I mean, it was just so, hey, this was life, man. It's like, just tough it up. You're going to be okay, man. But, but I love that story. Pastor Scott shared a picture of, of Ralphie in his bunny suit. But, but what I love is leading up to that, the, the scene right before that, because mom says to Ralphie, there's Christmas morning, they're opening gifts. And mom says, Ralphie, what did Aunt Clara give you? Show everybody. Ralphie says, I don't want to. There is just this hesitant, no, I, don't, I don't want to. Mom says, Ralphie, show everybody what Aunt Clara gave you. And at that point, older Ralphie, who's narrating the film, comes over with this voiceover. And I love what he says. He says, Aunt Clara had for years labored under the delusion that I was not only perpetually four years old, but also a girl. <laughs> and then mom says, she always gives you the nicest things. <laughs> See, there's a delusion that's taking place because Ralphie's understanding the gift from one perspective. Mom is, she's kind of thinking about the gift from another perspective. I'm probably more the Ralphie, right? There's probably no greater story of gift giving than of brothers-in-law Larry Kunkel and Roy Collette may not ring a bell to you, but the story began back in 1964 when Larry's mom gave him a pair of moleskin pants. He, he lived, this was in Minnesota. So he wore these and he realized Minnesota winters, these are not good pants. So the next Christmas, he gifted them to his brother-in-law, Roy. Roy also discovered pretty quick, yep, these pants are not going to be any good. So he then, the next Christmas, wrapped them nicely and gave them back to Larry who then turned around and wrapped them and gave them back to Roy. You can see where this is going, right? Well, when Roy returned them, he actually took the pants and he, he twisted them up real tight and he stuck them in a pipe that was one inch in diameter by three feet. So that next year, Larry had to unpack the pants and re-gift them. And so the journey began. This lasted well over 25 years, and it turned into a pretty explosive gift exchange, and they knew the gift by the giver of the gift. Can I share some of these incredible journeys with you? I had to, I've been following this story for a long time, and I loved it. It actually ended in 1989, but, but I love it. So, in retaliation for the pipe, Kunkel compressed the pants into a seven-inch square. He wrapped them with wire, and he gave the, quote, bail to Colette. Not to be outdone, Colette then put the pants into a two-foot square crate, filled it with stones, nailed it shut, banded it with steel, and gave the trusty trousers back to Kunkel. Okay? The brothers then agreed to end this caper if the trousers were ever damaged. So here we go. The pants were then mounted inside an insulated window with a 20-year guarantee. 
The year after that, they were stuffed into a five-inch coffee can, soldered shut, put in a five-gallon container filled with concrete and reinforced rods. Kunkel then installed the pants in a 225-pound homemade steel ashtray made from eight-inch steel castings and etched Colette's name on the side of it. The next year, it was welded shut inside a 600-pound safe painted with red and green stripes. The next year, it was a 2,000-pound, three-foot cube that was once a 1974 gremlin. There was a note with the gift that said, the pants are in the glove compartment. So now you see, this gift giving was like, it wasn't just a morning exchange. This was a year-long journey, number one, to get the things unpacked and unwrapped and re-gifted for the next year. The next year, it came in an eight-foot-high uh, eight tire that was two feet wide and filled with 6,000 pounds of concrete. On the outside, Colette had written, have a good year. <laughs> From there, it went into a 17 and a half foot red rocket ship that was filled with concrete weighing six tons. I think we have an old newspaper. You can see the, the thing. So there's a pair of pants in there, right? But it's not just the rocket ship because the rocket ship is filled with concrete. It weighed six tons, five feet in diameter with pipes that were six inches in diameter out the outside, had a launching pad on it, and the rocket sported a picture of the pants fluttering atop. Inside the rocket were 15 concrete-filled canisters, one of which held the pants. The year after that, it became a four-ton Rubik's Cube made out of concrete. It had wood on the side painted. So after he solved the cube, he then turned around and he repackaged the pants in a station wagon filled with 170 steel generators all welded together. In 1988, Roy saw a flatbed truck bearing a concrete-filled tank off of a, what used to be a delivery truck for a ready-mix cement company rolled up out front of his house. Well, thoughtfully, he had supplied the service of a crane to hoist the concrete-filled tank and drop it in his front yard. But sadly, the whole gift-giving exchange came to an end in 1989. I know, it's sad, isn't it? <laughs> Colette was inspired to encase the pants in 10,000 pounds of jagged glass that he would then deposit in Kunkel's front yard. And while molten glass was being poured over the insulated container that had held them, an oversized chunk fell and it fractured the, the unit, then transforming the piles into a, or the pants into a huge pile of ashes. I know, it's sad. So we mourn this day over that, but... You will be happy to know that the ashes were deposited into a brass urn that now graces the fireplace mantle in Kunkel's home. So all these years later, those pants are still in Larry's possession on his fireplace. I love Christmas. I love the gift-giving exchange. And there's something magical about the gift when you look at who it's coming from. And when I think of the Christmas story, I think of a, a gift tag. I think of a gift tag that simply says, from God, your loving heavenly Father. And in that gift is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the most incredible gift. God, the most incredible gift giver, gives us the person of Jesus. Say it out loud with me. Jesus. See, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, as the angel appeared to Joseph foretelling the birth of Jesus, he said this. He said, she will bear a son. 
And you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The text continued in verse 25 when it says, when she had given birth to a son, he and he, this is Joseph, and he called his name Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 31, as the angel spoke to Mary, he said, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You see, the instruction had to be very specific because it was Jesus who was going to take away the sin of the world. It was Jesus who was the uh, Messiah that was foretold, that was prophesied. And so the name had to be very, very specific. So this morning, as we unpack the wonder of his name, I want to share three things with you. Can I do that? I want to share three. Can we do that? I got to participate with me now. All right. This is the giving and the exchanging here. The wonder of his name, first, I want you to see this, is demonstrated in fulfilled prophecy. You see, we, we can quickly just enter the Christmas season and go, oh, this is cool, it's Jesus, and, you know, we celebrate Jesus' birth, and we have the picture and the story all distorted, you know, because we think all this stuff happened so fast, but it, it was such a prolonged process of Mary and Joseph and trekking to Bethlehem and, and Herod killing the babies and the, the wise men showing up two years later, and, and you know, but, but we compress it all into a day. We just kind of want the Christmas experience in a day. And we realize that's really not the case because the foretelling of Jesus had been for thousands of years leading up to the birth of this baby in Bethlehem. And it's demonstrated through the fulfillment of prophecy. See, Jesus had lots of credentials when he talked about being the, the son of God. He claimed to be God. And some people say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Yes, he did. That, that was the whole reason he was being arrested in the first place. And he had lots of credentials. No one else was walking around healing people. No one else was walking around raising people from the dead. He had lots of credentials. But the, the one thing that is often overlooked, probably the most profound, is the fulfillment of prophecy. That Jesus was born to fulfill prophecy. The apostles, the New Testament writers, constantly appealed to the fulfilled prophecy to substantiate the fact that Jesus was indeed God. When we look at the Old Testament, there are 60 major prophecies about the coming Messiah. Up to 700 years, up to thousands of years before the birth of Jesus, these prophecies were saying, here's who to look for. Here's the one that you should watch for. Here are the things that will take place. Over and over again, Jesus even appealed to the fulfillment of prophecies to substantiate his claims to be the Messiah. So in Luke chapter 24, as he's addressing his disciples, this is what he said. Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The prophecies must be fulfilled. What prophecies? Well, the 60-plus in the Old Testament that experts will say have 270 ramifications of those 60 major prophecies. Can I just give you some of those today? Please do this. Don't try to write and keep up because we're going to do this fast. You're going to have to listen quickly. Um, I'll jump back like on our Facebook group page and I'll list some of these for you because it would be a great thing for you just to dive through and look at the, the incredible wonder of the name of Jesus as it was fulfilled in prophecy. In Genesis chapter 3, it was prophesied that he would be born of the seed of a woman. What's the significance of the seed of a woman? 
Man carries the seed, right? So in Genesis chapter 3, there's this prediction that Jesus would be born of a virgin from the seed of a woman. In Genesis 9 and 10, that he would be born through the lineage of Shem. Why? Because Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And so God immediately limited two-thirds of all human history by saying he would be born from the line of Shem. That he would be born in Genesis 22 from the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 21, from the line of Isaac. In Numbers 24, from the uh, line of Jacob. Genesis 49, from the tribe of Judah. God is breaking it all down from, from the children that were born of each of these descendants and making it very specific as to exactly where Jesus was going to come from in the human history line. We sung about uh, the, line of Jacob, the line of Jacob. We sang about the, the tribe of Judah. Isaiah chapter 11, that he would come from the line of Jesse. Jesse had a number of sons, but very specifically in Jeremiah 23, he said of all the sons of Jesse, the Messiah will come from the house of David. Very specifically in Micah chapter 5, as we looked at last week, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Listen, if you were not born in Bethlehem, you're not the Messiah. So if you have any kind of Messiah complex in here, Right? And you're not sure, hey, am I from the line of Shem? Am I from the line of, of Abraham or from Jacob or from Judah? Well, were you born in Bethlehem? Probably not. The list goes on and it gets really specific. Psalm uh, 41 and 55 tell us that he would be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah tells us that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that those pieces of silver would be thrown down on the temple floor. They would be picked up and used to buy the field of a potter. Psalm 22 tells us that his clothes would be parted and lots cast. Isaiah 53, that he would be crucified with thieves. Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12, that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Zechariah 12, that his side would be pierced. Psalm 34, that his bones would not be broken. Psalm 69, that he would suffer thirst. Amos chapter 8, that darkness would fall over the land. At the time of his death, Isaiah 53, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Psalm 16, 30, 41, 118, and Hosea 6 all prophesy of his resurrection from the dead. And in Psalm 68, his ascension to be with the Father. They go on, talking specifically about his names, about his ministry beginning in Galilee, about his miracles, about his parables, his entrance into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, his trial, his crucifixion. The list goes on. And basically what he's saying is this is not just going to be any single person born in human history. This child will be the Messiah. So if you're like me, you probably go, so what's the probability that it's me? <laughs> no, I'm kidding, right? But what is the probability that any one person in all of human history could fulfill these prophecies? Well, this is way above my pay grade because after Mrs. Potter in fourth grade, I gave up on math, okay? I'm just being honest. This is a vulnerable moment, right? Math and I were not necessarily the greatest of friends, but praise God for people like uh, Peter Stoner. Peter was the professor and chair of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy in California. And in 1944, he wrote a book about the prophecies of the Messiah, it's been redone and revised, I think, as most recently in 2005 by his grandson, as a matter of fact. But in, in his book called Science Speaks, Peter Stoner said this. He said that by using the modern science of probability in reference to just eight prophecies. Now, how many major prophecies were there? 
60 with 270 ramifications. Stoner did the math on eight. What are the odds that one person could fulfill just eight? Here's what he said. We find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, if you're a math person, you're probably going, wow. And if you're like me, you're going, so is that like a fraction or is that like, you know, what is that? Here's where I'd go to Mrs. Potter and say, Mrs. Potter, I do not understand. So, for people like me, Stoner then illustrates, right? This was verified by a guy named Harold Hartzler of the American Scientific Affiliation. Here's what Stoner said. He said, to, to grasp this number, he said, if we take 10 to the 17th power, now that's a one with 17 zeros lined up after it. He said, if we take that number of silver dollars, now, for those of you that live in this digital age, this is a silver dollar, okay? People used to carry these. Anybody remember carrying one of these? Let me also say these are hard to come by right now because I thought just for, for a picture, I'd put like 100 of them up here. I can't find them, you know? I'm contacting bankers in the church, and it's like, yeah, those things just aren't around anymore. People use debit cards and plastic. This is a silver dollar. So to give you an idea right, of time and space, he says, you would take a silver dollar like this. Here's two. There's three. He says, if you take one silver dollar for every number represented in one in 10 to the 17th power, you would take a silver dollar like this and lay it on the ground. You would cover the entire state of Texas. Anybody ever been to Texas? Texas is a big place. They say everything's bigger in Texas. I married a Texan. She's not here this service, so I can say, even the hair is bigger in Texas. You know what I'm talking about? He said, if you take a silver dollar and you cover the state of Texas, get this, two feet deep. I know, right? Wow, are you kidding? The chance that one person in all human history would fulfill just eight so it would be like this. It would be me taking my silver dollar and I would just say, hey, I'll tell you what, PJ, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a ticket. You can travel anywhere in the state of Texas that you want to go. I'm going to blindfold you. You can go anywhere in the state of Texas. I took one silver dollar and I put an X on it and I threw it out in the state and I mixed them all up. Now, PJ, you go anywhere in the state of Texas you wanna go and you pick up one silver dollar. The odds of you picking up that one silver dollar that has the X on it is one in 10 to the 17th power. God fulfilled his promises in the person of Jesus Christ. When you sing the Christmas songs, I want you to think about the wonder of his name. It is Jesus right? God fulfilled his promise. We, we began this whole series looking at the fact that God fulfilled his promise. We looked at the wonder of his promises. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Who is him? Say it, come on, say it out loud. His name is Jesus. All of God's promises are filled in the person of Jesus. 
unbelievable. He promised to never leave you, never forsake you. He promised to care for you. He promised to provide for you. Listen, if he can provide the Messiah with those kind of probability odds, believe me, he can take care of you. I don't care what you're going through. God's going to take care of you. Why? Because all of his promises are yes. And they're all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's who we celebrate this Christmas. And I want you to rediscover the wonder of his name. His name is what? Jesus. Thank you. Not only is the wonder of his name demonstrated in fulfilled prophecy, but secondly, I want you to see that the wonder of his name is a reflection of his nature and his character. It's a direct reflection of his nature and character. Let me share a couple of verses with you. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 9, verse 10. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Psalm, or Proverbs 18, verse 10. I love this. He says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Do you know the name of Jesus? Do you know the name of the almighty God who loves you, who cares for you, who promises that all of the promises are yes in Jesus Christ? Do you know that God? You see, sometimes in in our world, we sort of simplify the, well, yeah, I believe in God. Well, the Bible tells me Satan believes and trembles. He doesn't know the God that I know, and he certainly doesn't know him intimately the way he wants us to know him. And some of you this morning, you may believe in God, and you may, oh, this whole Jesus thing, I don't know. Listen, here's what I want you to know. He desires for you to know him so much more intimately. He wants to know you so close and so intimate. Here's what I discovered, because I I preached through a series of of the names of God years ago. There are over 300 names attributed to God all through Scripture. What? You you may have a nickname, right? Bubby, Bud, Moose, I don't know. I I just praise God I'm not called what my mom first planned to call me. See, I, I was born the second of two kids, had an older brother. So at that point in time, got a boy, naturally I'm going to have a girl, right? So my name was Cynthia Denise until the moment I was born and mom goes, well, now what do we do? You know? Praise God, I'm not known by Cynthia Denise to this day. I'm known by Dave. I'm known by David. I'm known by Davey still by my Aunt Glenda. Hi, Aunt Glenda, if you're watching online. Um, I'm known by dad. Known by brother, known by cousin, known by friend, known by brother in Christ. Known, you can be known by a lot of things, but here's what I want you to know. God wants you to know him in a very intimate, very personal way. And so what he did is throughout scripture, he unfolded his nature and character for you to know him and fall deeper in love with him through a series of names. See, he, he's introduced to us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. God. Who's God? That's the old word, Elohim. It literally means our creator. So you and I know God as our creator because he created the heavens and the earth. He also created me. Psalm 119 says that he formed me even before I was conceived. He knew me and he formed me in my mother's womb. He is my creator. But then he goes on because he says, man, you know, if if Dave only knows me as a creator, he doesn't know how much I really love him and how much I really care for him and how intimate I want to be with him. And so he goes on. For example, in Genesis chapter 22, you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. And God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, up to a place that I will show you. 
And as he's getting ready to to sacrifice Isaac's life, God stays his hand and he introduces himself as Jehovah Jireh, God, my provider. And he's showing Abraham in that moment, I am sufficient to meet all of your needs. Do you know him as your provider? Because see, everything you and I have above nothing is because God gave it to us. You have life because God gave it to you. You have breath because God gave it to you. You continue to have oxygen to breathe because God gives it to you. You have a home. You have a car. You have food on the table. Whatever you have, you have because God gave it to you. He is your provider, and he wants you to know him that way. Can I just run some with you? Here we go. He is known, and and we really discover this at Christmas time, as our Emmanuel. He is God with us. There's no place that you will go in this world that God is not with you. I don't care how lonely you feel. I don't care how isolated you feel. I don't care how set apart you feel. God is a God who loves you, created you, cares for you, provides for you, and he is Emmanuel, God with us. He promises us in the New Testament as a new covenant church that that he will give us the gift of the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing all of our future inheritance. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit that resides in you as a child of God and goes with you every place you go. Amen? He is our Elohim. He's the almighty God, your creator. He is Jehovah as he introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush. The name Jehovah literally means it's the self-existent one. I am that I am. I do not need anything else to exist. I am. Are you kidding? I am. He's the self-existent. He's a creator and yet he exists outside of his creation because he is the self-existent one. This is the God I call my dad. He's Adonai, means Lord and Master. He is El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. He is El Elyon, he's the most high God. He is Jehovah Mekodishkim. Literally, it's the Lord who sanctifies, who sets me apart and calls me to himself. He is Jehovah Nisi, it means the Lord, my banner. He is the standard for my life. He's Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He's Jehovah Ra, or the Lord, my shepherd that we so familiar see in Psalm 23. He is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace. He is Jehovah Rapha, he's God my healer. He is El Roi, he's the God who sees. Listen, there's nothing that's going on in your life, past, present, or future that God doesn't know about because he's the God who sees. And the psalmist said, God, where can I possibly run from your presence? If I go to the highest mountain, there you are. If you go to the lowest depths of the ocean, you're still there. God, where can I run from your presence? God said, nowhere. I am El Roi. I am the God who sees. And I don't care what's going on in any of your lives right now. I want you to know that God knows that. God knows that. The list goes on. He is Father. He's the distinguishing title of the new covenant. He's rock. He's, he's our strength. He's our permanency. He's commander of the armies of heaven. He is Jehovah Sidkenu. I love this. He's God, our righteousness. He's our redeemer. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a little bit. And and these two names always stick out to me. Why? Because he's my redeemer. He's the one who took my sin and nailed it on the cross. He is Jehovah Sidkenu, the one who shed his blood so that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood of his son covering me. And he sees me as righteous and he sees me as holy. Folks, that's why we participate in the Lord's Supper. That's why we enjoy it. He's our Redeemer. His name is what? 
Jesus. It is Jesus who is my righteousness. It is Jesus who is my redeemer because he fulfilled the prophecies and his uh, name reflects his character and his nature. But third, I want you to see the wonder of his name is also significant in its power. It is significant in its power. There is wonder in the name of Jesus. And I, and I think in so many ways, we've kind of lost that wonder. We've come to just accept God and Jesus and church, and we miss the point that he calls us to life transformation and power through the person of Jesus Christ. And folks, we need to regain that. As a church, we need to regain that. As a people, we need to regain that. As the body of Christ, universal, we need to embrace and regain the power that is ours through the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, Pastor Scott was, was preaching, and he, he, he was talking about the little plastic image. Do you remember that? The little plastic image. And, and in so many ways, we just sort of take God and, and we sort of make him just a, a comfortable little image, something I'm comfortable with that I can carry with me and I can take him to Chick-fil-A and I can turn on my Christian radio and I can go to my Bible studies or do my Christian things and I can have Jesus with me because that's who he is. And yet when we realize he is so much more and his desire for us is so much greater Pastor Scott, and this came up in small group this week as, as we were chatting because he said, look, just like Herod, if Jesus is king, then I can't be king. Did that stick with anybody else? That stuck with me. You see, if, if I want to be king, then I can't allow Jesus to be king. So no wonder there's no wonder in his name. If, if I'm trying to control my own life and, and I think, well, God doesn't see me, God doesn't know me, God's not a promise keeper, God's not a promise, uh, he's not a God of peace, he's not a God of hope. Well, sure he is. But, but if I've replaced him with my little image of what I think God is, then guess what? The wonder is gone. Anybody else want to restore the wonder? I want to serve a huge God, a mighty God, one that I'm constantly amazed about. And so as I was doing some reading this week, I came across a, an old survey. It was done in 2000 by the Barna Research Group. And these, these statistics were just alarming to me because they were people who confessed to be born-again Christians. But here's what they admitted in this survey. And it's, I'm looking at it going, there's no wonder. There, there's no wonder in these people. 24% of these people believe that Jesus committed sin. Pardon me, how are you a born-again follower of Jesus Christ and somehow believe that Jesus committed sin? I believe that God fulfilled his promises in the person of Jesus Christ with probability way beyond my, my mind's imagination. And I believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, was crucified on a cross, rose again on the third day to pay the price for my sin. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 30% of them said that they believe that Jesus Christ never had a physical resurrection. I'm sorry. What kind of savior is still laying in the grave? We have people all around this world who worship people who are dead and rotted in the ground. And yet as a follower of Jesus Christ, we go celebrate the tomb because there's no body. 
We serve a resurrected Jesus. Listen, if God can fulfill his promises through the the prophecies to give me a man named Jesus of Christ, believe me, it is not a problem for him to let him live a sinless life, pay the price on on the cross, rise again, and conquer death on my behalf. That's not a problem for him. If he can create life from nothing, believe me, he can bring Jesus back from the dead to give me new life and new hope. Amen? His name is what? His name is Jesus. 31% of these respondents said that they believe a good person can earn his or way into heaven. Listen, if you can earn it, then why is it a gift? Ephesians 2, we already looked at it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Listen, there, there is no way in the world any one of us can be good enough Because the standard is not me and the standard's not you. The standard is God. It's his holiness. If you think that you can somehow earn your way to heaven, then you know what? You have the holiness and righteousness of God. And you're a pretty awesome person. And just come come introduce yourself because I want to just come worship you. (laughs) Praise God, I worship a man named Jesus. Let me ask you a question, and I'm going to ask it a little bit different. Have you ever had the chance to have someone meet you that's well-known? In other words, somebody that the world goes, oh, this is like a famous, well-known person, but they had the privilege of meeting you? It's not the way we normally ask it, right? Well, what you want me to say is, you ever met somebody famous? How many of you have ever met somebody famous? So how many of you ever had someone famous, had the privilege of meeting you? See, that's the way I look at it. I've had the privilege to meet some pretty cool people just through my life. Tommy is one of them. Tommy's awesome. You know, Tom Landry. Anybody remember Tom? Tom Landry had the privilege to meet me one time. I thought that was pretty cool. He was thrilled. <coughs> um, yeah. You see, famous people or well-known people have a name, but that name is totally insignificant unless you know the name. Am I right? Have you ever been around people in like in a room or something, and they're like, hey, that's so-and-so. I'm like, who? And, and it's true regionally, too, you know, because like regionally, sometimes it's like, oh, that guy played for the Panthers. I'm like, Who? Now, tell me he played for the 85 Bears. I'm all over that, you know? But, but listen, if I don't know the person and I don't know the name, then it means nothing to me. I mean, I've worked events. I've been in some, some pretty serious places. And I'm, I take my job serious, right? I was like, Sorry, man, you can't come in here. And then somebody comes up and goes, do you know who that is? I said, obviously I don't, but you're about to tell me, Right? Oh, well, that's Joe Schmo. You know, oh, okay, great. All right. If he says you can come in, you can come in. Oh, man, I can't believe you didn't know him. Okay, sorry, I'm an idiot, right? But sometimes people are famous to certain people, but not to other people. You know, I'm a hot dog eating king champion kind of guy. You know, it's like, man, I want to meet that guy. But see, a name has clout, a name has significance, a name has pull, a name has power, a name has authority only if you know the name. 
And in our day and age, much like Herod, we also have to stop and say, am I Herod and I want to be king or am I like the innkeeper? Because in the story, the innkeeper had no idea who's standing at his front desk. Am I right? Oh, wait a minute. You're the one who's carrying the child who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, who's about to fulfill 60 major messianic prophecies with 270 major ramifications with the odds of just fulfilling eight of those as one in 10 to the 17th power. Oh, you're that, Mary and Joseph. Hold on just a second. I will make a place for you. See, sometimes we treat Jesus just like the innkeeper. God, God, I don't really know you. You don't really have a significant place in my life. I know your name has clout, significance, pull, power, and authority, but I don't know you. Here's my question. Do you know him this morning? Do you know him? Do you know the name of Jesus? Have you come to the place that you've trusted him and, and put your heart and life over to him, that you've given him authority, you've surrendered your heart to him? Because his name changes my name. I become a child of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, I absolutely love this. John says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, because that is what we are. When you and I come to the place of putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, guess what? We become a child of God. And so I don't care who I meet, I'm simply going, you've had the privilege of meeting the child of the Most High God. It's good to meet you. See, it changes who we are. It changes our mission. It changes our identity. It changes our purpose. It changes the value of our life because of who we belong to. I'm not the king. I'm surrendering my life to the king. I am the innkeeper acknowledging God for who he is. God, my life is no longer mine. It belongs to you. I'm submitting and surrendering myself to you and to you alone. And by doing so, I'm receiving the gift of salvation that you offer to me. A precious gift that I cannot earn. And this gift is a relationship through the person of Jesus. Amen? Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, it was quoted again in Acts chapter 2 by the disciples and again in Romans chapter 10 by the Apostle Paul. He simply said this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? I want you to take heart this morning that whatever has overcome you, Jesus has already overcome. You may be overwhelmed, you may be burdened, you may be struggling, and you may just feel like the whole world is coming over the top of you. I want you to know that Jesus has already overcome that for you. He wants you to turn to him. He wants to give you fellowship. He wants to give you hope. He wants to be your redeemer. He wants to be your righteousness. He wants to be the one who sanctifies you. He wants to be your hope. He wants to be your peace. He wants to be your shepherd. And he wants an intimate relationship with you. Why? Because the wonder of his name is demonstrated in fulfilled prophecy. It is a reflection of his nature and its character and is significant in its power. Do you know that power this morning? I'm going to ask you to do this. Would you stand with me just through the, throughout this room? We're going to close by just looking at two verses, and we're going to read these together on the screen. We're going to back, backtrack to where we started in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Would you read this with me? For to us a child is born... 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let's continue in Luke chapter 2. Read this with me. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 